Father, we pause before we speak to you for you are God. We thank you, God, that you allow us to say anything that comes to our mind, anything we need to say. And yet, we pause because we want to hear from you. For you to reveal more of who you are is of utmost importance. We want to hear what you have to say about yourself, about our plight, of what's going on, your remedy. We want to hear more about you. And so I pray, God, that as we open your word, that Jesus, you would help me to focus in on you, that you'd help us to be teachable and humble to receive, that, Father, we would not, we would not desire to read our agenda into the passage or our opinions into the passage, but, Jesus, just use your word. Speak to us from your word. Convey to us, reveal to us truth, and transform and change us into the likeness of Jesus. God, we love you, and we, we are so thankful that you gave us your word. God, use this time to impact eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone who agrees says, amen. Before we get to Colossians chapter 2, Jesus said this in Mark chapter 7. He said, well did, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it's written. Now, here's the thing. If you're looking for a Jesus who's nice, you're not going to like the Jesus of the Bible. He's not always nice. I remember a prophet said this to me years and years ago. He said, Jesus is not always nice, but he's always good. Think about it. For, I've, I don't know that I've ever walked up to somebody just straight up and said, you're such a hypocrite. And yet Jesus wasn't afraid to say this. But I think you've got to remember the heart behind why it is that Jesus would say things like this. A lot of times, I would, I, growing up especially, or when I was kind of younger in the quote-unquote the ministry, which just means I was getting paid for it, but we're all in ministry, you kind of look at Jesus as Jesus against the religious leaders. And yet you know that he had a heart for them because when Nicodemus comes to him in, in John chapter 3, comes to him late at night and Jesus actually has a conversation with him and explains the things about the kingdom of God. And so he didn't have hatred toward them at all. And so we have to remember that when Jesus has to convey some things that are a little bit difficult to hear, that he's a little bit straightforward, it's always from a heart of love he's care, because he cares for us. And so when he says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it's written. And I love the fact that Jesus brings that part as it's written. He didn't have to. He could have just said it based upon his own authority, but he takes us back to what does the Bible say? And that's why I keep bringing us back to that same question. What does the Bible say? And he says this, he quotes this part, he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Guys, that's a very strong statement because he says this, it's like, okay, so people are coming, they're coming and they're, maybe they're gathering in some kind of service that looks like this and they're going through the motions and they're singing the songs and they're dancing around and they're doing the hand motions because I killed it. I'm not going to lie. I nailed that one after I figured out what I was supposed to do. But it's like, you can go through all the motions, you could pray, you could kneel, we could, we could go through everything and yet if our heart isn't in it, Jesus calls that worship a waste. You haven't done anything. Because that's what it means. In vain do they worship it. You're doing nothing. So if you're here and it's like, well, I was kind of brought up, I was brought up Christian, I was brought up in the church, and I'm glad. I think there's positive things that come with that. But the heart behind it is worship. The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What God desires is your heart. Because everything that you do, if God has your heart, everything you'll do will, will come from that. Guys, in weddings, you should, there's this line that I use in most weddings that I do now, and I stole it from another pastor. When I saw it online, I'm like, wow, I'm going to take that one. So I always feel like I need to give the person the credit, but he said this, and I think it's so true. He said, love Jesus most, and you'll love each other best. You love, you love Jesus most, and you'll love each other best. Guys, this, this idea of obeying God, it's not just do things because you're supposed to. It's let God have your heart. It's all about Him. I love Him. And then when you love Him more than anything, your desire will be to obey Him. Your desire will be to please Him. Not just go through the motions and think that, well, I'm, I'm getting somewhere. Because how many times we've fallen into this? I'll go through the motions. I'll do some things. I might even drop a couple bucks into the plate. And I want to do that because then God will give me something back. Guys, you know what that is? That's bartering. It's not relationship. 
I don't know that I've ever looked at Kelly and said, Kelly, I'll do this. I'll do these things so long as you'll do this one thing. Like, can you imagine that our whole relationship was based on that? And yet with God, it's like, think about it. I feel like when we do those kind of things with God, we don't actually believe that he likes us or loves us. We're still trying to appease a God whose wrath has been appeased at the cross. Like at the cross, Jesus took the wrath of God. I'm not trying to work for the love of God. I already have it. I'm not trying to work for a relationship with God. I already have it. Everything that I do is supposed to just be done in worship, but when it's just going through the motions, man, they're, they're, they're honoring me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me teaching. But here's this, teaching as doctrines, as truth, as like scripture, the commandments of men. These are just personal opinions that all of a sudden have been elevated to being equal with scripture. Verse eight says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Guys, we have a danger of this. Here's something. You ever wonder why we gather like this on a Sunday? And why for decades, maybe almost a couple millennia, it's like we show up in rows, sing some songs, listen to some sweaty dude talk too long. The whole while you're trying to figure out where you're going to lunch while the guy's talking. It's like you go through the motion, but it's like when you go to the scriptures, it's like, why do we do that? Why did the church become a place or an event rather than a community? Like, when did that happen? How do we set up structures within the church that's like, quote, unquote, the quote, unquote, governance of the church? Like, where do we come up with these concepts? It's like, well, this is what we've always done. But what if we go back to what does the Bible say and just try to follow this the best that we can? Instead of, well, this is what I'm, this is what I'm used to. You ever notice the, the correct form of worship is whatever you got saved under? So if you're at a camp and it's just crazy and lights, it's like, that's how every worship experience should be. And if you're brought up in a church that's more hymns and organs and pianos and the dueling people, the, usually it's the two ladies dueling whose piano is better, organ, it's like a fight, they're trying to show organs where it's at, that's where every cool kid wants to be. It's like, well, that's how I grew up, and so that's the only true way to worship. All of a sudden, do you realize that tradition becomes elevated to the point of doctrine? Our methodology of doing things for Christ and with Christ, there's a lot of flexibility in that. So long as that we're not contradicting the scriptures, it's when tradition is all of a sudden taught as equal to the Bible. He goes on to say this. He says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, and they loved Moses. Moses was their guy. He says, Moses said, on your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. What's he talking about? What's Corbin? So imagine like my parents, they fall into tough times and they say, hey, we really can't pay the bills. And I'm like, I would love to help you, but everything that I have is dedicated to God. See you later. And the religious leaders would be standing outside going, it's dedicated to God. You don't have to help them because what you have has been dedicated to God. And it doesn't mean that in that moment I'm actually giving everything away to the temple and put all my money in there. I'm not going to use any of it. It's like, well, this is mine, but I have to keep this open to being used by God. And isn't that a shame? Because isn't the New Testament it's like, gosh, when you don't care for your parents, you're worse than an unbeliever. And so you have the scriptures saying this, and they wouldn't have had that because they're looking at the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, it says, honor your father and your mother. That scripture, it's stated pretty clearly. And then to come up with a tradition and go, I would do that, but what I have has been dedicated to God. And the religious leaders would say, yes. Why? Because it goes into the temple treasury, and they get to live off of it. Do you see what Jesus is bringing up in this place? And so I wrote these notes in my, in my notes, and I, I use it as a warning if you want to take it. I just said this, be careful that you don't attribute to God what is actually from you. Be careful that you don't attribute to God what is actually from you. You say, well, I don't think I would ever do that. 
Guys, do you realize it happened in the very beginning of the book? In Genesis chapter 2, God told Adam, I want you to work the ground, I want you to keep the ground, and the whole, the whole garden is yours, if not the planet, but the whole garden is yours, and you can eat from any tree except the one. And then he looks at Adam and goes, "Now nah, you can't do this by yourself. I got to create, create someone who will get the job done. Like, your helper, okay? You're, you're going to get you. So we're going to get the woman in here because you got to get some help. For what I've called you to do, Adam, you need her to show up. And so all of a sudden, God creates, uh, creates woman, and Adam sees him, names her woman. It's like, whoa, man. <laughs> so, I don't know if that's what it was. But that, that, it's like, this is, this is woman, and then they start doing this, and it takes to chapter 3. The enemy comes, the serpent comes, and says, did God actually say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Isn't the enemy a jerk? I don't even know if I'm biblically allowed to say that, but I'm like, isn't he he's just kind of a pain in the tail? Because at, at any point did God say, you can't have anything. No. At no point did God say, you can't eat of any tree in the garden. Good luck. Eat worms. He didn't say that. What he said, you can eat of any tree in the garden except for one. Isn't it amazing how when God puts a one exception, that's the only thing that we can focus on and we think that God is keeping us from joy. The one thing God says don't do, we want to do. And because God said it, he's the ultimate killjoy. And so because he won't let me do that, I know better than the eternal one. I'm now the standard and I disagree with you, God. And then therefore, you should get in line with me. Because that's arrogance. It's pride. So he says, Did God say, didn't God say you can't have anything here? And what's Eve's response? He said, no, no, no. God said we can eat of any tree in the garden except for one. Like, don't touch this. Like, don't eat from this one. Don't even touch it or else we're going to die. Now, did God ever look at Adam and say, if you touch one of the leaves of that tree, I'll kill you? No. He just said, don't eat it. But I'll be honest, I would have put that rule on myself. But here's where she went a little bit wrong. She said, God did say we can eat of any tree in the garden except for that one. We can't, God said, we can't eat of it nor touch it or we'll die. But God never said that. See, it can be a good bit of advice. But friends, that advice that's been helpful to you, people need to make sure that they understand. Make sure that they get this. It's your advice. It's a principle that you've applied according to the truths of the scriptures, but do not attribute it to God if it's not from God. We stick to what he says. We then apply these things that God has given to us. We pray through it and we walk with the Holy Spirit. And we're asking God, show us how you want us to do this in our lives. And if this is something that helps other people, I want to help people. But at no point can I then say, well, this has helped me. So therefore, it's a universal thing and commandment that every single person who calls himself a follower of Jesus must do or else you're not a follower of Jesus. Do you see the difference? So instead of attributing to God what is actually from you, here's what I think we do. Seek and stare at Jesus. You're like, there he goes talking about Jesus again. I know. And it's going to happen a whole lot, probably weekly. Just seek and stare at Jesus. Why? Because when we begin to elevate all these preconditions and these necessities that are human made, like man-made. Guys, when we start doing that, that's when people go, oh, the church has hurt me, burned me. And I'm like, was it the church? Was it really the people of God who just want to love Jesus the best they can? Or was it some people or someone who elevate a personal preference and tradition thinking that it's equal to scripture and that principle burns you, but then you just kind of, you just kind of take it and it's an umbrella over the whole church and that's why you're done with it. As we look at the scriptures and we find what? A whole lot in there. And a whole lot that I don't get. And a whole lot I'm still trying to understand. And some stuff that I don't agree with. And yet God is always true and he's always right. And so we jump back into Colossians chapter 2 verse 20. It says, if with Christ. And that word if is also translated as since. And I think it's better to say it this way. Because it's not like if this really happens. It's like since this has happened. 
So since with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive, in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. What's he talking about? Reminder from last week. From last week, he's saying, hey, there's people that are coming in teaching you false things. It's not just about Jesus, saved by grace through faith. They're coming in and saying, hey, you've got some Jesus and you've got some, this false humility, plus you've got this mystical stuff, plus you've got Jewish legalism, and you have to do all these things. And I have the secret knowledge, you don't. I have the secret knowledge. Do what I do. Pay me some money. I'll make sure that you get what you need so you can do the same things I'm doing, and then you can be right with God. And so here Paul is addressing this. He goes, if you're with Christ, if with Christ you died, not physically, physically died, but in reality, when I surrendered to Jesus, my old life is dead. And now I'm with Christ. So I've died with Christ. Then why do I keep submitting to regulations that are of the old covenant? Like you're not, this isn't us anymore. Jesus fulfilled that part. Verse 22, referring to things that all perishes they are used. And then he says this, according to human precepts and teachings. This is human opinion. Human teachings, human precepts. And you've turned them into traditions and commandments, which is what Jesus talked about in Mark chapter 7. And we continue on in verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There's a whole lot there. What the heck are you talking about? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Guys, some of this stuff looks really good. And it can truly be helpful. But it's in promoting self-made religion. Guys, here... I was debating whether I was going to choose this as an example. Okay, I'll do it. About, let's see, I was about 30. And then so it was about six years ago. I'm just joking. <laughs> you don't have to laugh that hard. Okay. So, <laughs> a little while ago, I went to the doctor, and uh, I was a youth pastor at the time at uh, the first church I got to serve at. And uh, the way that youth eat is awesome, but it'll kill you. And I didn't stop eating that way. I mean, I would just, like, we're going out, it's like chili cheese fries and a cheeseburger and to wash it all down, like a gallon of soda. And then when I was done with the soda, you fill it up before you go. Why? Because I'm about value. <laughs> right? So I go to the doctor and he's going through, the, he did blood work and all this. He goes, your triglycerides are off the chart. I'm like, thank you. I didn't know that, man. I thought that was a good thing. It's like, oh, I, I, I try to excel. I don't know what healthy levels are. I'm not a doctor, but they were like the mid-700s. Thank you. That's what I didn't know that I was supposed to sound like that. I was like, is, is that like a credit score? Because I hear that's good. If it's in the 700s, I'm killing it. He says, you're pre-diabetic and you need to change, make some changes. And I'm like, oh, I don't like that phrase. I was about 280 at the time, and then I found myself getting pretty winded when I would preach. Just preaching. I'd be like, Jesus loves you. I'm just preaching. Now I just sweat. That's healthy. That's a glow. <laughs> but my addiction was soda. I'm like, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing sinful about soda, except when I have three or four 44 ounces a day. And I, I would get one on the way to work in the morning as part of my breakfast. It's like, you have that in a donut. Donut, that's awesome. But I'm pretty sure that was part of the problem. And so I thought I need to change that. And so I haven't had soda for seven or eight years. But I'm telling you, every time I see someone with a Mountain Dew, I just want to beat them down and suck on that thing. <laughs> I do. Unapologetically. But it's still a battle. I'm 50 pounds less and I'm working out and I'm really, it's a fight. And then there's seasons where I feel like there's great victory. I mean, not sodas, but just making sure I'm trying to eat healthier. And, and then there's seasons where it's harder. But when I'd have people come up to me and say, you know what, Brian? And they'd, say, they'd kind of make it broad. You know, I just really have a hard time listening to anybody when they're preaching about God if they're not healthy physically. And so I would just own it. I'm like, you, so no one listens to me. 
Like I'd go home like, I don't think anyone hears me preach. They don't hear anything from God because I'm, I'm not their standard and I, it plagues me. Yet there's wisdom in taking care of my body, right? There's wisdom in that. And yet to connect that to whether or not I truly love Jesus and can be used by him is arrogance. The only problem is I need you to remind me of that often because I wish I could say that I have victory over that completely, but I don't. But what if I just got up and I ate to the glory of Jesus and not to the wishes of people? What if I got up and I worked out just because I love Jesus and he gave me the ability to work out instead of what other people would say that would be so harsh? It's always wonderful when you walk up to somebody for, and you haven't seen them before. I'm like, wow, you really got fat. Thank you. And you're still a pain in my side. But guys, I don't want to live according to the self-made, quote unquote, religions or the self-made wisdom of people. If they're connecting God's ability to do work through me or in me or connect my devotion and love to Jesus on those things, and I don't want you to fall into that either. What I want you to do is to love Jesus. I want you to seek him with everything you have, and then when you do that, and he is the one that you love the most, make decisions that are most honoring to him. So how, I've said this before, how often I have to look at Kelly before I leave it. I can do this, right? I can do this, right? And then my prayer is like, God, please don't let there be anything in my life that keep people from hearing about you and to know you and to understand you and to love you more. Let there be nothing in my way and nothing in their way. But friends, may we live in the freedom that comes with knowing Jesus and the gospel, this good news that comes with him and not according to the standards of people. Yet we should have the freedom to walk up to each other and go, hey, this is what I'm noticing in your life and I think there needs to be some changes because I love you. That's different than placing this false accusation or false, um, this placing arrogance and pride onto somebody else or one's own insecurities and leveling that onto somebody else so that they're having to bear your weight. Guys, that's when it becomes detrimental. God wants us to live in freedom. Love God, love people. Make disciples who make disciple makers, but not self-made stuff. Not self-made religion, not self-made severity of the body. I wrote this in my notes, and we'll get into what the severity of the body is in just a second. I wrote this in my notes. When something is self-made, self is the point. When something is self-made, self is the point. So if I make up something, what I want you to do is I want you to notice me. But if I'm saying, hey, I want you to go back to the Bible. Anything that I say you don't agree with, go back to the Bible. Because who would have thought I could be wrong? But the Bible never is. And what if at the end you read it, we get together, we talk about it, and what if we disagree on this secondary stuff, on the primary stuff? Jesus is divinity, absolutely we hold to that. Saved by grace through faith, not by works, absolutely we hold to that. What the end times looks like, I don't know. We can differ on those things and be okay with it. So long as we come back to what? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Because here's the danger that comes with self-made anything. It's called idolatry. Like, Brian, I don't have a statue of myself. I hope not. Unless you got one of those bobbleheads as a joke thing that somebody got of you. That's fantastic. But this idolatry, this is what I think idolatry is. I wrote this down. When someone or something besides Jesus is the point. When someone or something besides Jesus is the point. Why? Because when something else besides Jesus is the point, you will do, say, act in certain ways. You will think certain ways all to the glory of that thing or of that person or of that circumstance, whatever it is. He said, well, we don't really struggle that today. Yes, we do. Not by a show of hands unless you really feel like you want to. Anybody, anybody, anybody struggle with the need to succeed? Has success become your your need to achieve? Has it become something that's more important to you than Jesus? And if that's true, then it becomes an idol. Like when you hear the word addiction, you always think it just means like alcohol or, or drugs or soda. We don't think soda, but it's like we never think caffeine is an addiction because that's a necessity. That's why the Starbucks line is like 20 miles long. And everyone's sitting, you sit there for an hour for a drink that takes you two minutes to drink it. 
We don't think of that as an addiction, but can work become an addiction? That's why it's called workaholics. For those that find your identity in what you would do and what you achieve, you need to keep working, right? How do I know this? Because I'm like that. Or I was. You gotta keep working and get home. Get home from work. Spend some time at dinner. Get back to work. Why? Because when I'm busy, I'm necessary. And when I'm necessary, I'm validated. I'm affirmed. When all of a sudden your identity is in Jesus, you know that you're loved and adored and liked by him, not by what you achieve, by how you, not even by how you obey, I'm just loved by him. And the things that I get to do with him and for him is just worship, not to try to build more of who I am, but just to say thanks because I love him. I can finish working and I can go downstairs and hang with the family and leave my laptop upstairs. But for, for years it wasn't that. Guys, we can get so addicted to our idols, we just, don't, we just don't admit what they are. So these false teachers, they're saying, do these certain things in order to beat the selfish to sinful desires that you have. That's what he's talking about when he gets to this place of stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Isn't it amazing that as you're, for those of you that are followers of Jesus, didn't you think this, that when you gave your life to Christ, you would never struggle with sin again? Like when you, were, didn't, when you didn't know better. Like when I was younger, it's like, oh, if I give my life to Christ, then I'm free from sin. So there's never a temptation. Like I'm free. And then all of a sudden you surrender to Jesus. And on the way back from the cabin, that after I surrendered to Jesus in the chapel, I get ticked off and I have these nasty thoughts going, I thought those were gone. Why do I still have these appetite for sin? It's because we have this body. Our body has this appetite for sin. I use this as an example all the time. Think about it. Whenever you hear this phrase, did you hear about, huh? Did you hear about Jojo? <gasps> no. Let's pray for Jojo and hear all the details of why. We think it's prayer requests. It's just gossip. Why do I have a struggle in making sure that I'm trying to be healthy? Why do I have a struggle with that at times? Because my body has this appetite. And so what they would say, this is how you deal with it. You don't feed the appetite. You don't give it anything. Just don't do anything. You imagine, okay, so I'm struggling, trying to make sure I'm living healthy, <clears throat> eating healthy. I'm like, I got this desire. It's not healthy. So I'm just not going to eat until it's gone. Physically, I'm not going to eat until this is gone. Until that love for gravy is gone, I'm not going to eat anything. And we think that that's how you get rid of an appetite. Or is it better to actually fill your body with things that are healthy so your body will want the things that are healthy and not want the things that aren't? You don't get rid of the appetite by not having anything ever. You fill it with the things that are correct and right and pure and lovely and honorable and worshipful to God. Do you see the difference? Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. Here's why we have this battle going on. It feels like it. But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. And that's when people go, what does that mean? Does that mean I have to have this experience? I need to be able to hear every, ver every, every word the Holy Spirit gives. I need to be able to decipher every single time. Guys, it's cool if we get to, get to that point. But here's what I actually think it means simply. Walk in obedience to God. You walk by the Spirit. It's not just I had this experience and every thought that I have because I'm walking in the Spirit is of God. That is not true. Friends, we cannot trust ourselves that much when it comes to our thoughts. I take every thought captive to make it what? According to the scriptures, take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. Every thought I have should go through the, the what? The filter of the scriptures. Instead of taking every thought in the scriptures and letting my thoughts be the filter by what's true. To walk by the Spirit means just to walk in obedience with God, but it's to walk with, not just do things, but to walk with him. So walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You want to get over these desires? Walk by the Spirit. Do something good, not just stay away from doing things that are bad. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So you ever feel like there's this battle? I really want to do this, but I'm not supposed to, but I want to. And the things I should be doing, I want to do those things to please God, and I don't find myself doing those things. And then there's times where I want to please God and I actually do it. And then there's times I don't want to do this thing and I jump into that. And like, what kind of Christian lives like that? 
Paul? That's Paul. Guys, it's in Romans chapter 7, the second half of chapter 7. You read Paul. And I've heard people say, hey, this is, this is what Paul was like before Christ. I don't believe that. I think what he's saying is this is what I'm struggling with. The things I want to do, pleasing God, I find myself not doing them, but then jumping into the sin. And the sin I shouldn't be doing, but I want to please God, I keep doing those things. So now he feels hopeless and helpless. I love the fact that we have writers of scriptures who are honest. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's like, you be honest in this process. It's almost like God had to make sure that we, later on, 2,000 years down the road, are going to hear from honest writers so that the things that we think, feel, and experience, we don't feel like the worst Christians ever because the ones before us were going through the same kind of things. If you get to verse 21 of Romans chapter 7, he says this, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And doesn't that sound helpless? It's like I want to do good and there's just this battle going on. And he's verse 24, wretched man that I am. Guys, there's this weird dance we're supposed to dance. When I surrendered to Christ, I became a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I'm seen as holy before God. I'm seen as righteous before God. I'm in right standing with him. As holy as Jesus is, is how I'm seen because I'm called what the Bible says in Christ. Yet, I still have sin. I have these sinful desires. And so here comes Paul going, wretched man that I am. And he's like, well, you just need to have a better self-esteem. I don't want a better self-esteem. I want God's esteem of me. I prefer his esteem rather than just my own. Because my own is always going to be attributed to what? What do I achieve? How did I live? What did I do? God's esteem of me is what did he do? And what does he think of me? Think about it, guys. Jesus came and died for the imperfect version of us. The sinful version, while we were enemies of the cross, while we were enemies of Jesus, Christ died for us. And this was his plan before the foundation of the world. So when he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's like, what am I going to do? And some people might come along and go, if you just give up this and you do that, and there's 42 things that you could put into practice, and this is going to give you freedom over that. I love the fact that right after he asks the question, he actually answers the question. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. I love the fact that he didn't say, what will deliver me? He says, who will deliver me? He's like, it can't be me because I have this battle going on, so who else? He goes, oh, praise be to God. Guys, isn't it amazing to know that God is involved in all this? He's involved in your life. Not just got you saved, see in heaven, but involved in all of it. It's called the process of sanctification. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our being saved from this sin, these desires come through what? You hear this all the time, ready? Abiding in Jesus. Remain in Jesus. Seek Jesus. Stare at Jesus. Praise be to God. So is it possible that the way that we fight against sin is not to think of our sin and say, I'll never do that again. I'll never think about that sin that I'm talking about and thinking about right now. I'll never think about it or talk about it right now except I'm doing it right now. What if instead of that, you just, we just seek Jesus? We go to Jesus. We keep talking to Jesus. Jesus, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do here? What's, what's beneficial? What's right? Instead of thinking that you have to do it all on your own, realize you can't. Wretched man that I am means I can't do anything by myself. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God. Back to Colossians, down chapter three, verse one. He says, if, and I think that word there should be since, since then you have been raised with Christ. See, we died with Christ. It means our life is no longer ours, it's gone. 
and we've been resurrected with Christ. It's like, oh, say, I'm resurrected to new life. Watch, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Seek the things that are above. That word seek is to look for something in order to find it. It means take some effort, make some effort. Seek, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Why is that so important? Because dead things don't sit down on anything. If Jesus didn't come back from the dead, we're all jacked. But because he resurrected and he's seated on a throne, and that throne is for the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and the Holy Spirit who is God is in us. Friends, we can't do this, but God can do this in and through us. We seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus said this similar thing in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Been brought up in the church, you know this verse. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. How can I be righteous with God? By Jesus. I seek first his kingdom, not my kingdom. I seek first his kingdom, not mine. Not this nation, not any other nation, not this planet. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Friends, when we surrender to Christ, our citizenship got transferred to heaven. Heaven is our home. That's where we place everything. The fights that happen on this planet should not dictate, should not define any follower of Christ. We should not engage in the things the world does in the same way. We have a mission. We have a call. Go make disciples. Go make disciples. And then those, those, those disciples should go make disciples. And my standard of living is not based upon who's in power, who was voted in. It's based upon the one who's seated on the throne. And he will give his throne to no one else. He is sovereign king of everything. And followers of Jesus, that should give us hope. We don't have to worry about it. We stay focused on the call. We stay focused on the mission. And to live by the standards and the commandments and the rules of our King whom we love and who adores us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What are all these things? This is in the context of Jesus saying, don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or what you're going to wear or where you're going to live. Don't worry about those things. It doesn't mean that I'll get everything I've ever wanted, but God will give me whatever he, need, whatever he thinks I need. And he's a good father. And a good father knows how to take care of his kids. And so we trust him whether high mountaintop experiences or low valleys as realizing, hey, he's involved in all of it. He wants me to go through these things. I'm going to trust him in the process, but I will be obedient to him because I love him. And he loves me. So my question to you, does your everyday life show that you actually seek the things of God first or, he is, or is he an afterthought? Is, does God fit in with wherever there's some space? Or is it just about Jesus? And everything else will find space, but Jesus is it. It's always got to be about him. Friends, I think, it's really, I think there's dire need for the church to show the world what it looks like to be completely sold out, focused upon Jesus as primary in everything so that they can actually see the difference. The hope that we're supposed to be able to explain to people, to defend whenever necessary. Guys, there should be this hope in us. And I'm convinced that only comes when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. When he is the point and nothing else is and everything else falls under his lordship. So after we've sought first God's kingdom, what do we do next? Verse two, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Set your minds, so this constant. So I seek, there it is, put my mind, that's what, I want, that's what I want to be like. And then set your minds on those things. In other words, daily, hourly, minute by minute, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on this earth. Does it mean we don't engage the world? Absolutely not. We're supposed to go love people. Love the crud out of people. I've said this before. People may think we're so crazy, out of our minds believing. What? A virgin birth? Jesus was born of a virgin? That's crazy. I know. But let me show you how much he loves you. 
You may think I'm jacked crazy for anything that I believe that this Bible says, but hopefully by the end of our conversation, or we're hanging out, or we're living around each other in the same neighborhood, what I pray is you see the difference that Jesus makes in me by how much I seek and love you, to spoil you. What if people may think we're crazy, but they can't get enough of us because, man, they sure feel loved by God because we love him so well. What does it mean, though? I found this quote. I don't know the author. I also said give them credit. It says this, to set one's mind on something is to choose to think about it, influencing one's goals and guiding one's course of action. I've set, I've, I've, I've set my mind on this, and because I've done that, everything I do, say, and think will be done on what I'm setting my mind on. Verse three, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's beautiful. Like I belong to him. You belong to the follower of Jesus. You're his. You're hidden in Christ. And then he says this, when Christ, not if, when. Here's why I think it's so important. I'll get into just a second. When Christ, who is your life, who is your life? Jesus is supposed to be your life. He's not an addition. He's not another hobby. He's not this ideology that I have. It's not the philosophy that I hold to. It's not even a religion. Jesus, it's him. And he is to be my life. When Christ, who is your life, appears, when he appears, when Jesus comes back, friends, he's coming back one day. And for some, you're going to go, I can't wait, because then all those people have been mocking us Christians. Man, they'll know, and they'll feel so horrible. Guys, that shouldn't be our heart. Well, maybe a little bit. No, I'm just joking. But it shouldn't be our heart. What it should be is, one day, Jesus is coming back. And what I understand from the Scriptures, and I know people disagree with this, but I think I'm going to meet him in the air. I get to meet him in the air. Because I don't care what heaven looks like. Unless he's there. When Christ who is your life appears, he's coming. It could happen before I finish the message. Like what if it happens before then? Do we actually live with that anticipation, that excitement? It could really happen. The other question is, what do I want Jesus to find me doing when he appears? I'm busy. Let me take a picture of this and post it for the world. <laughs> when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When he appears, you'll appear with him in glory. Whose glory? Yours? No. No, we don't have any glory. It's all connected to him. I think the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, we're almost done, I promise. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I think the writer of Hebrews nailed it. Summarize this whole concept. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, does it encourage you all to know that every follower of Christ before you has gone through life just like you? Some have experienced less hard times. Some have experienced such greater hard times. But in all of it, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Guys, if those witnesses get to, if they get a peek at what's going on, do you realize that every witness is going, you got this, you got this, not because you're great, but because this God is great. The God who's in you is great, and we, I made it. I was trying to encourage college students. I was talking to one last night. She's getting ready to start off at CBU in the fall. I said, are you nervous? She goes, I'm really nervous. She says, why are you, what, what are you most nervous about? She goes, the work, the workload. I was like, oh, okay. I'm just, let me encourage you. And if you're starting off college, let me encourage you. The first month, you want to die. The first month, you're terrified. You get the syllabus, the syllabus is thicker than the book. You're like, oh, I have to read what? I mean, I have to do a five-page paper? Guys, that becomes like an overnight thing after a while. But when you first see it, you're going, I'm going to die. I said, give yourself a month. And after that month, you'll be fine. You'll figure out what you really have to do. You'll be okay. You're going to make it. And here's proof. If I made it, you're golden. It took me five years, but you're going to make it. You'll be fine. We were surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. I can't wait till one day if I get to stand and incur, I don't think it happens, but if I were able to, 
And to look at a follower of Jesus who's still walking, and I'm with Jesus to sit there and go, you're gonna be fine, I made it. You'll be fine. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. Every weight. Anybody here bogged down by anything that's just killing you? You feel like it's just so heavy on you? You don't know what to do with it? Just like a, you feel like you're supposed to carry it. And what does the scripture say? And it's like, how do you do this? Like, how do I practically do this? How do I practically lay aside every weight? I don't know. I don't know the three-step process, but I think I can tell this. One, you pray. One, you just keep talking to Jesus about it. And two, you keep telling him, I don't want this. I don't want this. I don't want this. Would you take this? At what point do you think that God's gonna sit there and go, stop asking for that. I wanna weigh you down so it's beyond you. So you just hate life every day. What if it got so heavy so you would realize that you can't do it on your own and you would turn to the God who can? What if God in his omniscience and in his sovereignty had to get to the point where he got Paul in 2 Corinthians and he says, I was so overly burdened beyond my ability to endure but this happened that I would not rely upon myself but upon God who raises the dead. What if God has been so good to you to bring that point so you'll actually release it? Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here it is, looking to Jesus. That's why I don't have four points to a sermon usually. I don't have six points to the perfect marriage or perfect life or perfect finances or perfect anything. I just have looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How do I know that Jesus will come through? How do I know? How do you know that Jesus will come through for you? It's like, well, I just believe. That's great. But how do you know? Like, what has he proven in the past that he will bring you through this next part? And even if it doesn't turn out the way that you thought it would, it's not the happy little ending that in our minds think is what I want. What if God loves us enough to not let us settle for happy, but to move us into joy? How do I know that God will come through for you? Because Jesus, the pioneer, the founder of my faith and the perfecter of my faith. He endured the cross. He scorned its shame. He resurrected from the dead and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. That's who I look to. And if he pulled that off and he went through that for us, then why do you think he would stop now and finishing the work that he began in you? That's why we look to Jesus. Not human principles, not man-made religion, not man-made wisdom. We look to Jesus. As the worship team comes back up, let me finish with three more verses. Paul wrote this in his second letter to a bunch of Christians in Corinth. In chapter four, verse 16, he says this. He says, so we do not lose heart. Maybe for some, this is the application for you today. Like everything that we've talked about in the scriptures so far, maybe that's connected to the so. So because of everything we've looked in the scriptures so far this morning, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Guys, you know how I know my outer self is wasting away? It's because I have to grunt to get off the chair now. Like my knees hurt more than they did when I was 20. I'm like, huh? why did I just make that noise? But our inner self, watch it, watch, watch, is, is what? Is being renewed day by day. God's doing a work in you and he's doing a work in me and we trust him in the process. Verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And I know that for some of you, this verse, you, you don't like it. Why? Because what you're feeling right now and what you're experiencing, it does not feel like light or momentary. 
This has been something that has been going on for a long time. And it is so heavy. And it can be so easy to focus in on that affliction. Going, Do you realize how heavy this is? And guys, I will never downplay how heavy that is. But when we look from God's perspective, and that's what we want, right? It's not me trying to convince you, hey, believe me. No, no, let's look to the scriptures. When I look to what the scriptures teach, and this eternal weight of glory, guys, you know how long eternal is? Forever. And so when I compare everything I go through, how many years God gives me on this planet, highs and lows, no matter how long that is compared to eternity, it is light and momentary compared to eternal weight of glory that comes with God. That's what we get forever. Verse 18. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Watch it. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That phrase again. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. If all I do is focus on the here and now, out of control. Then I feel out of control. Yet you can realize, I believe every generation prior to us has said the same thing. They look at what's going on, they go, it's never been this bad. It's out of control. Guys, I just think God can do anything he wants. And God is sovereign and ruler. And so we set our minds on things above, not on the things of earth. Why? The things of earth are passing away. They're transient. But the things above eternal, eternal. So let's invest, let's invest in what's eternal. Can I pray for us? Jesus, we look to you, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, and we thank you that you endured the cross despising the shame. We thank you that you resurrected and came back from the dead and we thank you that you're seated on the throne. Father, I pray that that truth and reality brings us eternal and unquenchable hope. God, for those, whether they're here or watching or listening now or later, God, that weight, it doesn't feel light and it doesn't feel momentary. Father, I pray that you would show them your perspective and that Jesus, they would welcome your invitation. When you say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. God, may we, may we lean into that. So God, for those who are just feeling it, oh God, I pray. I pray that they would see from your perspective that even in your grace and your goodness, you've allowed this to happen. That they would come to the place where they know they can't rely upon themselves but on God who raises the dead. And God, for those who are already at that point, I pray that they, they see the truth of this, this light and momentary affliction. Oh, and God, just give them excitement and passion for the glory that's to come. God, may we live for the applause and the audience of one. Jesus, you're worth it. We love you. To you be all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor for you alone are worthy. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all of Christ's followers say, amen. Love you more than you know.